Grab your Bible. We are in the midst of talking about evangelism and the gospel. In the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to clarify what the gospel message is. If we're going to do a, a good job of evangelism, uh, we have to, as Paul said in the end of Colossians, as we wrapped up the book of Colossians, we have to know what the message is. And we have to be able to speak it clearly, boldly, and concisely. And uh, this morning, here's what I want to do with you. Uh, I just want to talk briefly. I kind of broke in here in the middle of uh, our worship set intentionally. It's kind of good, though. Maybe Preston can work out our bugs back there on the EQ. But um, here's what I want to do. I want to give you... I want to give you a little bit of a better grasp around this idea of salvation. You know, as believers, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you understand this idea of salvation to some extent. But I think perhaps maybe we get uh, so accustomed to the idea of salvation that it almost diminishes the, uh, well, the depth of it in our hearts. Maybe we get kind of... Uh, used to it, maybe a little hardened to the idea that uh, Christ died as our uh, provision for our salvation. Well, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is the only religion, it is the only system that has a true form of salvation. Did you know that? That really in no other religion that you look to do you find a salvific act. There's a couple of things you need to have a true Doctrine of salvation. Let me, let me give them to you. Number one, you need to have an understanding, a presupposition, if you will, that there is something gone terribly wrong inside of humanity. That, uh, let me put it this way, that there is a, there's a, there's a, a shortcoming, there's a gap, there's a fault. Okay? There's something wrong. It's a picture of uh, somebody drowning, essentially, is that, if you will. And so... All these other religions, they violate either that principle or they violate the second principle that God has to reach down and do it for us. Okay? And so in any other religion you look at, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, any other religion, you find that it violates one or both of those. That they say, like Hinduism, that there's really not evil in the world. There's really nothing wrong. It's just this misinterpretation that we have that we need to grow out of this idea that there's really evil. And so we can, by our knowledge, overcome evil, if you will. Or uh, maybe like Buddhism, it's sort of a reformed uh, Hinduism, uh, that there is evil, but you just need to concentrate enough, you need to focus enough, you need to meditate enough so you can reach this point of what they call nirvana, to where you can overcome the evil that is deep inside of you. Or maybe it's like Islam, that uh, there is something terribly gone wrong. But they violate the second part, that they themselves climb up this moral ladder to try and achieve and impress their deity. That one day when they stand before Allah, they're never really sure, but they hope that they've done enough that Allah will have mercy upon them. Now, you see, in Christianity, we know that there is a problem. There is such a drastic problem that we cannot help ourselves. And we also know that we need someone to come from the outside and to reach down and to help us. And you need both of those components for true salvation. So I want to give you just some concepts this morning that the Bible uses to help us understand uh, really the importance and the weight of this idea of salvation. I'm convinced that salvation has really just, uh, we maybe become accustomed to the word that we don't fully grasp the weight and the depth of what it took to achieve our salvation and what our salvation therefore provides as a result. 
So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a couple, couple concepts that help us understand uh, the requirement that was needed for salvation. And I'm going to give you a couple more concepts that the Bible talks about uh, that helps us understand the results of our salvation. All right? First word I want to give you, first concept I want to give you, is the concept of sacrifice. Now, we throw that word around a lot in Scripture and in uh, church. We know, we know what it means, basically. Uh, let me give you a few verses here. Preston, if you can go to uh, give our first verse there. Let me just give you a few of these verses. Ephesians 5.1 Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us as an offering or sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Go ahead to the next one there, Preston. Under sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. There you see that word sacrifice again. And we've got one more verse under sacrifice. Colossians 1, 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. See, Christ was this sacrifice for us. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, One time a year in the Old Testament, the high priest would go in and he would offer a sacrifice on the behalf of Israel. And therefore they would be, like I said, I think you you understand the concept of what a sacrifice is. But I want to focus on the part of a sacrifice that I think is missing in our understanding. You see... The idea of a sacrifice implies that our salvation was not simple, it was not cheap, and it wasn't easy. And even further, it wasn't without pain. You see, to think of our salvation in terms of a sacrifice helps us to understand that our salvation required a painful end and a painful death. It wasn't easy. It wasn't cheap. And our salvation wasn't without pain. A sacrifice was required. The idea of a sacrifice goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. You remember Adam's sin? God comes back to the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding behind the bushes. He's got fig leaves covering his nakedness. You remember what God did? It says that God clothed him in the skin of an animal. Where do you think God got the skin of an animal? You think some animal just raised his hand voluntarily and said, Hey, you can have, you know, you can have my coat. What has to happen for you to get the skin off an animal? The animal has to be killed. It has to be a sacrifice for the covering of Adam. So even back to Genesis, God knew that there needed to be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice, remember, isn't cheap, it isn't easy, and it isn't painless. An animal had to die for Adam and Eve to be covered. Our salvation wasn't cheap and easy. It required that someone had to be a sacrifice And a sacrifice is a drastic concept, guys. It's not just that somebody gave up something so we could have something else. It's not just that somebody gave up uh, uh, something extra that they had so that we could have this. You see? You have to give up everything to be a true sacrifice. Christ gave up His very life to be a covering for our sinfulness, for our nakedness. Let me give you another word here. Well, let me, let me give you this. Maybe I can unpack sacrifice this way. I'm not a big baseball fan. Some of you may be baseball fans, but there's a couple 
A couple uh, pictures in baseball that I think are, are helpful to us understand this principle of a sacrifice. They fall a little short, obviously, because they're not dealing with salvation. It's, it's baseball. It's a game. Uh, anyway, but uh, sacrifice fly. You've heard that term? A sacrifice fly uh, essentially is one guy standing on home plate, and he's going to hit a ball, and he's going to hit it up in the air, if at all possible, so that his guy on base can advance to the next base, and hopefully he can advance home. But what's going to happen to the guy who hits that pop fly? He's going to be out. He's not going to get to go to base. He's going to hit it up in the air, and he's going to, in other words, take one for the team so that his guy can go from third home. You see the parallels? Christ as our sacrifice. He didn't just do something haphazardly. He took the penalty of being out, if you will, and allows us to advance and to make it home. Let me give you another concept here. It's the concept of a substitution. If you understand the concept of a substitution biblically, I think it helps us to understand what our salvation really means. A substitution, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made the bullet. Now again, I think this is where we, we fall a little short in our word pictures of what we understand as salvation. You know, we understand substitution helps us to know what salvation means. But substitution in America is really a, a hard concept for us to understand. It's, it's kind of strange to us because in America, we feel like if you, you uh, break the law, who has to pay the penalty for that law being broken? You do. So the idea of someone else coming in and stepping in on our behalf and paying that debt on our behalf, well, we say, no, that, that's not right. The person who, who broke the law needs to pay the penalty. So it's a little strange to us as Americans. Let me, let me unpack it for you this way. If uh, this idea, the importance of understanding substitution. If uh, my son runs out into the street and uh, there is a uh, school bus plowing down my street and uh, Grady's run out there to chase his ball and I see that that bus is coming and I make a mad dash to scoop Grady up and dive across to the other side of the road and save my son, is that a substitution? No, I've saved my son. But the picture of a substitution is much more harsh than that. In fact, it's, it's, it's not a story that we like. It's not the kind of hero we want. The story of a substitution, the picture of substitution, is that Grady runs out into the road, and I run out, and I simply push him out of the way, but I take the hit. You see, I, I die. So to understand the substitution biblically helps us to understand our salvation because we, again, understand that it wasn't cheap grace. It wasn't painless for Christ to die on our behalf. He didn't just run in, scoop us up, and get us across. You see? He ran in, he pushes us out of the way, but he takes the hit. Uh, doubtless, if any husband were uh, in the position to where he knew he could take a bullet for his wife or his family... Uh, without a question, many of you husbands would say, yeah, I would do that. You would step in front. But the sad end of that is that you take the bullet. Your wife or your children get away scot-free, unharmed. But you take the bullet and you risk your life. You see, sacrifice and substitution, biblically, they're there to help us understand the level, the depth that God went to to secure our salvation. 
It wasn't easy. It wasn't cheap. A sacrifice and a substitute, it's a bad conclusion to those stories. It's not a hero that comes out and shows up on the 6 o'clock news that ran into the building, grabbed the child, and runs back out. Runs into the building, gets the child out, and he stays. That's the extent that God went to on our behalf. You know, I was thinking about, in the Old Testament, popular story of Abraham and his son Isaac. You remember the story. Abraham was told to take Isaac, take him up onto the mountain, and sacrifice his son. And it's a story of Abraham's faithfulness to what God had told him to do. That God would, in Abraham's mind, provide a way out as long as he was faithful. And you remember Isaac carried the wood altar. And uh, God provides. God does indeed provide. God provides a substitute. You remember? It was a ram caught in the thicket. And so Isaac gets to be untied and let go free. That's a picture of us. But you know what? There's another picture. There's another angle of this story. Christ obviously represents the ram caught by his horns in the thicket that comes in and subs for us, takes our punishment on behalf of us. But you know what the picture also shows? The picture also parallels Abraham as God and Isaac as Christ. And in the story where Abraham is God and Isaac is Christ, Abraham raises the knife to sacrifice his son. But there is no ram caught in the thicket. You follow me? There is no ram. There is no further substitution. And the father has to plunge the knife into his son. Christ. You see, Christ was that sacrifice and he was that substitute too. And there was no other substitute. He did it. And he didn't get to be untied and freed. God had to plunge the knife. Christ had to remain on the altar. He had to die. I think sometimes we lose, uh, we lose the idea of substitution and sacrifice when it comes to Christ because we know He rose from the dead. But can I tell you, the hard part of being dead is that you have to die, especially in Christ's case. So it makes no difference that He rose from the dead. He still went through the death. Amen? He was still the sacrifice, and he was the substitute, and no one stepped up on his behalf. He had to take the bullet. He had to take the hit. One of my favorite movies uh, came out years ago, a Denzel Washington movie called uh, John Q. Anybody ever seen John Q? Great movie. Uh, now that I have a son, I hate the movie. Can I tell you? I, when, I, when I saw it years ago, it was before we had Grady. And, uh, you know, I teared up a little bit. Now, anytime this movie comes on, uh, it's been on twice. And I haven't been able to finish watching it without breaking down and just crying. If you know the story, let me give you a quick synopsis if you don't. Uh, John Q., just a regular average Joe, hard worker, young son playing baseball, falls down on the baseball field, has heart failure, gets uh, to the hospital, and long story short, he needs a heart transplant. By the way, if you haven't seen this movie, it's been out for a long time. I don't care if I ruin it for you, okay? It's your fault. Uh, his son gets in there, and he needs a heart transplant, and he's, he's fallen fast. They're about to lose his son, but his insurance isn't going to pay for this transplant. So they're selling everything they've got. He's working as hard as he can to try and raise enough money so that he can pay for the transplant, so they'll put his son on the transplant list. But until his son can get on the transplant list, he's got no hope. And until he can pay for the transplant, they're not going to put him on the list. 
So John Q goes to extremes. He uh, goes into the emergency room and he takes all these people hostage. Now, this is where the analogy a little bit breaks down. Christ obviously wouldn't do uh, something like that. But you understand the desperation of the Father. That he'll do anything that he needs to do for the Son. It comes to the point where the hospital's not going to put him on the list. And in one of my favorite scenes of the movie, you see John Q, the father, he goes into the room of his son. And you love your mom. She's your best friend. And I'm just, I'm just losing it here. Because I'm imagining having to say these things to my son. But he's saying these things to his son because he's come to a conclusion. You remember what it was? He's come to the conclusion that there's only one person that can save his son now. And it's himself. If there's not a heart for transplant out there, and if they're not going to put him on the list... He decides that he's going to turn the gun on himself. And he's going to sacrifice his own life. And he's going to be the substitute for his son. Pretty big deal. But any father would tell you, yeah, there's no question. There's no question I would do that. And so he lays down on the, uh, the bed in the emergency room. He puts the one bullet that he has into the gun. Pulls the trigger and it just clicks. It doesn't go off. Just about that time, his wife comes running to the door. They found a transplant. They found a heart for his son. But you see, John Q was willing to give his entire life. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to be the substitute to the extent that he would die. And his son would go free. Now, there's a happy ending to the movie. But biblically, listen, we don't get the happy ending. Christ does have to die. He does have to take that bullet. So you understand the impact of a sacrifice and a substitute? Let me give you another concept in Scripture. It's the concept of a ransom. Put Mark 10.45 up there, Preston. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. You know what the idea of a ransom is. You've seen all the movies. The child gets kidnapped. The guys call in and say, Hey, here's the ransom. We want $1 million for your son or for your daughter if you want them back alive. And you have to pay that ransom. Listen to what one theologian said about the biblical concept of a ransom in relation to your salvation. To ransom or redeem, these are words used of the price paid to redeem something that, listen, is in pawn or the money paid to ransom prisoners of war or the money paid to purchase the freedom of a slave. Did you catch that? So essentially, biblically, a ransom for your salvation means that because of your sin, your life was sold into pawn. You were prisoners of of war needing to be freed and you were slaves needing to be bought back there's a price for your freedom there's a price to let you out put 2 Timothy 2 up there Preston 2 Timothy 2 5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time Christ stepped up and he was that ransom. Now let me, while I'm on uh, Denzel Washington movies, let me give you another good Denzel Washington illustration. He did another movie uh, a few years back where he was a bodyguard. It was called, uh, oh, what was the name of the movie? I'll think of it in a minute. But, what was it? Line of Fire. Yeah, Man on Fire. It's Man on Fire. Denzel Washington, he's a bodyguard for this little girl. And there's a threat on this little girl's life that she might be kidnapped because her parents are extremely wealthy. 
The movie goes on and they don't want money. By the end of the movie, you know what they want? The ransom is a life for a life. And so they call up and Denzel gets a call from the uh, kidnappers. And he says, what do you want? We'll give you anything. And they say, we don't want money. We want a life. If you want this girl back, you meet me at this place at this time and you bring a life for her life. So Denzel has to make a decision. He goes and in the last scene of the movie, uh, there's a bridge. Pretty symbolic scene in the movie. There's a bridge. And on one side of the bridge are the kidnappers and this young girl. On the other side of the bridge is the mother of this young girl and Denzel Washington, the bodyguard. And Denzel knows that the fair trade is a life for a life. And so the kidnappers let the little girl go and she runs up to the center of the bridge. Denzel walks the other side up to the center of the bridge. He kneels down, embraces with the little girl, sheds a tear, and tells her, Go ahead. Your mom's waiting on you. You're free. He stands up, looks back, waits for the little girl to be safe, takes a deep breath, turns towards the kidnappers, and he doesn't hightail it. He doesn't run. He walks into the hands of those who required the ransom. And I thought, what a picture of what Christ has done for us. That he has, he has built this bridge and He provides a way that He can let us go free and be ransomed. But do you understand the price? It's a life for a life. For the wages of our sin is death. God requires, according to His justice, that life be given for our life. And Christ says, I'll go and I'll do that. He was the ransom for us. Let me give you one, another word here. It's justification. Uh, your salvation provides justification on your behalf. To be justified means to be declared righteous or to be in right standing with God. It's a legal word. It's a technical legal word that essentially means that uh, you're standing in front of a judge. And the judge doesn't slam the gavel and say you're forgiven or you're pardoned and you can go free. The judge says... You are totally justified. You are exonerated from the crime. It's, we tell our children to remember justification by saying it's just as if you never sinned. And so it's the judge slamming down the gavel and saying you're totally innocent. You never did this crime. Our salvation provides for us justification. Um, look at Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by, the, by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Remember, there's nothing that we can do in our current state. There's no work that we can do. There are no laws that we can keep. And instead, by our faith in Christ, we are justified. It is just as if our sin never occurred in God's sight. 1865, Abraham Lincoln was president. It was just above the stage. And now he has free access to go in. And uh, originally his plan was to kidnap the president and hold him ransom for the uh, uh, Confederate War. And uh, he decides, you know what, we're going to have a little bit of a change in plans. And uh, John Wilkes Booth goes into the presidential booth, pulls out his revolver, and shoots good old Abe in the back of the head. Well, 
in order to flee, he jumps down off of the presidential booth towards the stage, but he gets the spur of his boot caught on the flag that hangs from the presidential booth, falls to the stage, breaks his leg. In all the excitement, scurries off, makes his way all the way to Maryland, finds himself at the house of a, uh, of a doctor, by chance, and this doctor mends his leg. Not knowing what had previously happened, this doctor mends John Wilkes Booth's leg. He escapes, gets even further. Finally, the cops track him down. They corner him in another house, and uh, they burn him out, and then one of the cops shoots him. Well, they were a little disappointed that somebody shot John Wilkes Booth because they wanted to hang this guy up. I mean, they wanted revenge for the death of the president. They needed someone to pin this on and demonstrate in front of the whole country that we've gotten the guy. But he's dead now. So they went really on a... uh, on a hunt for anyone else who might be involved. And they tracked down the doctor who mended Booth's leg. And they brought him to trial and they convicted him of uh, aiding and abetting a felon and assisting in the murder of the President of the United States. And they convicted him and they sent him to jail. Well, uh, this doctor, his whole time in jail, pleaded with the government saying that I I did not aid and abet this guy, I I did not know what he did, I just did my job as a doctor, I wasn't trying to help him escape. And uh, he spent about, uh, I can't remember how many years in jail, several years in jail. And as uh, further presidents came along, they looked back on the case and they heard his pleas for exoneration. They would look back and they offered him several pardons by the next following presidents. They'd come into office and they would offer him a pardon. Uh, He was released on one of those pardons, but he never in his heart accepted the pardons. He ended up dying, rejecting the pardons given by the presidents. His son carried on his whole life, lived to 101 years old, would never accept the pardon. His son died at 101, and now his great-grandson still lives, declaring that his uh, great-grandfather was innocent. You know why they would not accept the pardon? Because a pardon just says, we're letting you go even though you did what you did. We're going to pardon you from your breaking of this law. And the doctor says, I did nothing wrong. I don't want to be pardoned. I want to be what? Justified. Jimmy Carter came along and uh, finally totally exonerated this guy. He didn't just pardon him. He he struck all the... uh, All the uh, records of this guy's uh, breaking of the law said that he was not involved at all. He did nothing wrong. Cleared his name. He justified it. He made it to the point where he had, it was just as if he never sinned. Now, justification. Do you understand that your salvation results in your justification in that God has not just pardoned you in God's adoption? You ever known anybody who... um, doesn't have a middle name. Anybody know anybody without a middle name? It's kind of rare if you don't know someone without a middle name. Anybody know anybody who got to choose their own middle name? Really? It's even more rare. Okay? If you did, I'd be upset. You'd mess up my illustration. Well, you're looking at a guy. I didn't have a middle name. And I actually got to choose my own middle name. You say, how did that happen? Well, long story short. When I was about one, one years old, Living in Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania, my mother and my biological father got divorced. My mother decided to leave my biological father because on repeated uh, occasions he was, uh, he was unfaithful. And so she left him and took me and my brother, who was uh, four or five at the time, 
And uh, she moved us to St. Augustine, Florida, and uh, grew up uh, not knowing my biological father. Well, around about when I was five, my mom met this other guy, and she loved him, and he loved her, and they decided, well, they were going to get married. And so they got married, but something interesting happened. He didn't uh, just look at my brother and I and say, you know what, those are her kids. He decided to do something that he didn't have to do. He decided to go to the judge and say, Judge, I want these two children who their father has abandoned, who their father wants nothing to do with them. I'll take their name and I'll change their name. And so my name was Daryl Michaels. And he said, no, your name is going to be Daryl Ruiz. And my brother's name was Corey Michaels. He said, no, your name's going to be Corey Ruiz. And he didn't have to do it. You know, these two bratty kids that she brought along with her into this marriage, he didn't have to do that. But he went in and he legally adopted us. And he said, they're not just going to be her kids, they're going to be our kids. And so all that was going on, the judge said, hey, you don't have middle names, you want to pick a middle name? So my brother and I lived there and said, yeah, let's pick a middle name. So I picked Andrew after my grandfather. And uh, there I had a middle name. But you see, this guy... He didn't have to do that. And the beauty of the picture of adoption in Scripture is that God willingly accepts us and makes us now heirs. And now everything that John Ruiz has when he kicks the bucket is going to be mine. going to be my brother's. And we're going to have a big garage sale and sell it all and uh, buy a beach house. I doubt it. But, um, but he put our name down as his own. And we are heirs. Listen. To understand our salvation, guys, it's more than just somebody did something so that we can go free. You see, someone had to be a sacrifice, and that sacrifice had to die, and he had to die bad. Had to die ugly. Someone had to be a substitute and not just push us out of the way and be the hero. Someone had to be the substitute and take the hit for us. Someone had to pay the ransom, and it wasn't just a ransom with money that they had in a bank account. The ransom was their very life. And they did it for us. And as a result, we get not just our name cleared and exonerated, we get our name changed. And we get now a new name and we become a new creature. Until you understand the depth of that, until you understand the hardship of what he did, it's probably never going to be impressed upon your heart to give that information to someone else. So you think hard and you think long and you think deep about what Scripture says your salvation cost God, about what, uh, what Scripture says your salvation provides for you. It is no small thing. Amen? Let's pray.